Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. Hi, my name is Al and I am a physician working in Indiana. I watched with uh, shock and grief what's happening uh, in Syria and Turkey after the earthquake. And uh, I want to uh, raise awareness of what the uh, white helmets are doing. Uh, They helped in uh, saving people before when there was uh, bombing against civilians and they are still helping. This is really heartbreaking and sad, but still showing the courage and heroism of those helping people with limited resources. A massive 7.8 magnitude earthquake in southern Turkey and multiple aftershocks have left rescue teams and civilians scrambling to save lives. Since then, Turkish, Kurdish, and Syrian people have walked among collapsed buildings looking for loved ones in the rubble. I took my children and my wife immediately and we left um, the, the, the building to the street Many of the people um, um, lost their their children, their their partners. Um, um, everybody was was shouting. That was Mohammed Hamser, a coordinator for the organization Islamic Relief, speaking to the BBC. In response to the disaster, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan called for a three-month emergency across ten provinces in the country. Coming up after the break, we take a look at the devastation in the aftermath of the quake. We talk to journalists and aid organizations to get a better sense of how the people who live in the region are coping. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's start our discussion with a conversation I had with Piotr Zaluski. Piotr is a correspondent for The Economist based in Turkey. Piotr had recently returned from Antakya in southern Turkey. I began our conversation by asking him what the city looks like following the earthquake. When I was there a um, day and a half ago, uh, there were uh, relatively a few uh, workers in the city center, rescue workers in the city center. There were some rescue teams on the outskirts. Uh, but uh, the scenes inside the city were were quite apocalyptic. Um, you know, almost every other house uh, had been destroyed, and by destroyed, I mean and flattened, uh, pancaked almost entirely. Um, and uh, people, relatives, volunteers, friends, uh, volunteers who had come from other parts of the country uh, were digging for survivors in the rubble. Um, uh, there was some heavy machinery uh, in, in the area, but there was definitely a lack thereof. And so you had people, you know, pleading with with soldiers, uh, with rescue workers to bring cranes or diggers um, uh, to their houses to try to uh, dig up their uh, relatives, their loved ones, but there simply wasn't enough machinery around. And um, I saw, you know, an elderly woman uh, begging three uh, for Turkish troops for help, uh, and they said, you know, they were trying to help her clear the rubble with their hands, literally. Uh, but when she asked for a crane, 
they said, um, you know, they had to prioritize, they had to make tough choices, and they could only deliver cranes to those areas, those buildings, where they could hear the screams of the survivors. And they said, uh, effectively, we can't hear anyone um, from the rubble of your building. Um, she was looking for her son, and they said, you know, uh, your, your son is presumably dead. So that's in, in the city. What have you been seeing in villages across southern Turkey? Well, I'm actually in a village um, called Şeroba just now. Uh, and here the devastation is um, on par with what we saw in Antakya. Um, obviously, the houses here are uh, much smaller. We're talking about, you know, at most two-story, maybe three-story houses. But uh, this is... Uh, uh, possibly the area that was hardest hit. The fault line, the southern Anatolian fault line, runs right through the middle of the village. And where I'm standing right now are huge cracks in the earth, um, and that's where the fault line is. Uh, here, again, every other building um, has has collapsed. Uh, it's a village, well, perhaps a town of up to 10,000 people. Uh, at least 200 are uh, believed dead um, and uh, there may be others buried under the rubble. And so the death toll that um, we're hearing right now, uh, that's bound to rise and perhaps um, you know double or even triple, just given the sheer number of buildings that, that have collapsed, uh, at least 6,000 buildings. And so if you imagine that you know each of those buildings, um, and that figure comprises buildings that are, you know, that were 10, 14 stories tall and home to maybe 100 um, people or so. If you multiply, um, you know, those 6,000 by the number of families or residents living inside, you get, you know, um, you get a figure that uh, begins to capture, I guess, the, the extent of the, the devastation and the human, the human toll. Well, this earthquake is one of the largest in Turkey's history. Alex Hatem is a researcher with the United States Geological Survey, and she explained why this earthquake was so deadly. The destruction is sort of combined with the fact that this was a shallow, large-magnitude earthquake, coupled with the fact that there were plenty of people living on top of the epicentral area in these vulnerable structures. So it was sort of a confluence of factors. You know, large magnitude earthquakes can occur at shallow depths like this one did and um, have no impact on the built environment or on loss of life because there's nobody necessarily living there. Piotr, how prepared were these communities for an earthquake? Uh, well, that's that's a difficult question, and that's a question I think that people are still um, coming to grips with. Uh, you know, the emergency response was... Um, inadequate. Now, whether it was inadequate because uh, there weren't enough rescue workers around or enough machinery around, or whether that um, is because the sheer um, scale of the destruction, um, you know, I mean, you could you could argue it both ways, but uh, certainly uh, places like Antakya did not see. Uh, any relief operations, um, or at least the city center did not see any relief operations for over a day. The village where I'm standing today um, was largely abandoned to its fate for the first two days, um, by which point anyone who might have been trapped um, under the rubble had uh, 
very little chance of surviving. Um, in, in the village alone, at least 200 people are feared dead. Uh, there is help pouring in, um, coming from volunteers and also obviously from government uh, agencies and municipalities. Uh, there's food, there's blankets. So in terms of the humanitarian relief effort, um, there, at least in, in the places I've seen, there is enough. The problem is, or was, um, the scale of the rescue operation. Um, there just simply wasn't enough, you know, heavy uh, machinery. Um, there wasn't enough manpower. There weren't enough resources to cope with the scale of the devastation. What role is the Turkish government playing in the coordination of disaster relief? That's also become a rather sensitive issue because uh, the government um, has taken over the entire relief effort um, and the emergency uh, rescue effort. Uh, there is a state of emergency in place now in the 10 provinces um, hit by the earthquake. These are home to about 13 million people, so the number of people impacted by this um, is, is said to be in the millions. Um, now, uh, again, there is help pouring in from all corners of the country. And actually, I mean, there's a remarkable show of solidarity and support, you know, from um, uh, ordinary citizens, uh, from NGOs. Um, everyone uh, is, is stepping up. Um, but help is also pouring in from opposition-held uh, municipalities. And there things get a bit tricky because um, the government uh, has said that it and only it can coordinate the relief effort and the rescue efforts. The opposition has said that, um, well, due to uh, what it considers the government's sheer incompetence in handling uh, the aftermath of the earthquake, they're not going to abide by those rules and they're going to coordinate their own relief efforts. Um, I don't think this has translated into any open um, conflict or standoff, but um, the coordination obviously does leave something to be desired. But there is, again, there is uh, just a mass of uh, humanitarian aid pouring into the affected areas, um, and that's coming in, you know, uh, you have trucks uh, carrying supplies and food um, from all corners of the country. You have people uh, in their own cars bringing blankets, uh, bringing food, bringing rugs, um, bringing food to even villages as remote as, as this one, as Shekeroba. That's Piotr Zaluski. He's a reporter for The Economist based in Turkey. Let's add a new voice to the conversation. Joining us now is Avril Benoit, the executive director of Doctors Without Borders in the United States. Doctors Without Borders has teams on the ground in both Turkey and Syria responding with life-saving aid. Avril, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Avril, how did Doctors Without Borders mobilize when the earthquake struck early Monday morning? Well, it really is quite astonishing, uh, particularly in the northwest of Syria, where we already have 500 staff who were supporting numerous structures in Idlib and in Aleppo uh, regional districts. 
we were able to mobilize our staff to shift gears. Uh, many of them were awakened uh, by the earthquake. Uh, tragically, we lost two colleagues who died in the rubble. Uh, one was found immediately, one many, many hours later. Uh, but for the teams that survived, um, they were immediately able to start treating wounded. So they rushed to uh, Doctors Without Borders supported health facilities in Aleppo and Idlib and uh, immediately received thousands of injured people um, and uh, started uh, getting to work treating, treating patients. Roughly how many staffers did you have in the area prior to the earthquake? In northwest Syria, we have uh, 500 uh, staff, roughly, uh, and these were have been there for a long time. Uh, you must remember, of course, that this is a, a country that has experienced uh, a dozen years of war, uh, and so the, the health facilities we've been supporting, uh, for example, included a maternity, a couple of maternity wards, uh, emergency centers, uh, numerous clinics. Um, so in the immediate hours after the earthquake started, for example, in the Jindiris area, which is in Afrin district of Aleppo, Governorate, uh, we were able to uh, use our emergency stocks, which are always on standby for um, events like this. We started distributing blankets, hygiene kits, uh, food items to, uh, to target uh, 2,500 families in the area. So besides this emergency response uh, in the northwest Syria side, we have teams in Turkey uh, who have been dialoguing, um, expressing offers of support repeatedly to the authorities in Turkey and uh, hoping to be able to begin work there. A BBC journalist, Anna Foster, visited Adana, Turkey, and spoke with civilians working to rescue people from under the rubble. Here's one of those civilians speaking through an interpreter. There are people still trapped under rubble. I have a friend living in this apartment. His children were rescued from the top floor, but only his daughter broke an arm. We'll see what happened to those living on the ground floors. May God give us a speedy recovery. Avril, why is time such a critical factor in administering life-saving aid for people rescued from the rubble after an earthquake? Well, you can imagine that uh, if you are under the rubble, uh, there are any number of things you could be experiencing, uh, one of them being a lack of oxygen in whatever space you're in. There could also be uh, crush injuries, uh, loss of blood, uh, there are, uh, you know, as minutes tick by, um, always increasing chances that people will not survive. So the search and rescue uh, work that is underway, which is not our specialty, we're more on, you know, at the point when people are uh, are recovered and, and able to make it to hospital. That's where um, the prime priority focus is on uh, the trauma surgery, uh, wounds, uh, the dressings, um, and just making sure that uh, people get through those uh, early critical hours. We have uh, a burn unit, for example, in northwest Syria where um, the team is really highly specialized, very experienced in infection control, and this is also a major uh, preoccupation because when you have open wounds, uh, when you have a need, for example, for the frequent changing of dressings, uh, you need to really have hygienic conditions. And um, in these open settings uh, where people are living outside, people are living in their cars because of the cold, uh, where perhaps uh, they don't um, necessarily have access to the best of uh, conditions uh, for, for just maintaining uh, the cleanliness of their wounds, you can end up with infections that are life-threatening. Um, so that's also a, a major focus of all the medical work going on.
Now, Doctors Without Borders, of course, isn't the only group on the ground. How are your medical teams coordinating with Turkish nonprofits and other groups who are working to, to help in the recovery? Yes, the Turkish authorities, uh, as you just heard earlier, are uh, really in control of the response. And so we are uh, on the ground. We have a team that's always been working in Gaziantep, uh, largely on uh, supply logistics in order to be able to provision our operations in northwest Syria. These are experts in emergency response. Uh, We have more expertise that we've flown into the area, and we are ready to provide assistance in Turkey and to mobilize all of our emergency capacities uh, if the Turkish authorities give us the green light. Now, in the meantime, they've they've said that uh, all international aid effort, as I understand it, has to go through a local organization. And so we have a historic partnership with an organization called the Blue Crescent, uh, Turkish-based, and we worked with them once before, and so we are partnering with them for some of the distributions of non-food items, survival items, medical kits um, that we've been able to uh, make available in Turkey. What are some of the challenges in, in getting aid to Syria? Are their needs different considering the impact of the war in the region? Yes, absolutely. These are uh, populations that have been displaced multiple times uh, over the years, um, already living in precarious housing conditions. Our teams have been, uh, over the years, supporting um, mobile clinics uh, and small health centers in a number of the camps for internally displaced people. Now, Syria, uh, as you may recall, is, is... you know, a country where you still have over 14 million people in need of humanitarian assistance before the earthquake and 6.9 million internally displaced people, many of them women and children living in camps or in other kinds of precarious conditions. And so there's there's just no question that this is a, a region that has a need of the international community to mobilize all all our capacities. Now, one of the sticking points, of course, is the crossing. So in order to be able to provide supplies into into this particular region of Syria, uh, the closest route would be through Turkey. And uh, the crossing, the one crossing that is approved by the United Nations for transporting international aid into Syria, we we are supporting the call to make sure that this crossing remains open and that more access points are available for the humanitarian help to be able to enter northwest Syria. That is absolutely critical. And we should mention the first United Nations convoy has crossed into northwestern Syria from Turkey. Six trucks of shelter items arrived earlier today. Avril, there are the immediate injuries and deaths that occur during this type of disaster, but what are the longer-term health effects for those impacted? They will be enormous. Uh, Again, looking through the medical lens, when you have people with injuries, crush injuries, uh, possibly amputated limbs, um, the post-operative care is is long-term. And this is something that I experienced and witnessed myself after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, where you had a lot of surgical activity happens in the, in the early going in the first weeks, but then um, you really need months and months of post-operative care, wound management, dressing management, changes, all of that, and then, of course, physical therapy. And the other thing I would mention is mental health care. Uh, when people have lost their loved ones, their homes, their livelihoods, their autonomy, 
um, it can have a devastating impact. And we offer, through our programs in emergency settings like this, something we called emer emergency first aid, uh, first aid mental health. Uh, it's a kind of approach to just help people have a kind of get through the day. But over the longer term, you really probably need um, much more support to those who are emotionally shattered, psychologically uh, in need of, of more specialized care. And then finally, I would just mention that all the other medical needs continue. So somebody with cardiovascular disease or diabetes, um, they can now be at extreme risk if they are cut off from their meds. Um, so making sure that we are also uh, providing support for chronic disease management and care uh, is something that will keep people alive in the aftermath of such a catastrophic disaster. And then, of course, you've got uh, babies continue to be born, uh, children continue to trip over things and have injuries, and uh, there are still burns, and all the other medical needs uh, will continue and, and one of the risks in natural disasters like this, or even in sudden onset conflicts, uh, is that all the, the priorities, all the, the focus, all the money just goes toward uh, trauma, surgery, mm -hmm. trauma care. And there's always a risk of overlooking uh, those everyday needs, such as the management and treatment of people with chronic diseases. That's Avril Benoit. She's executive director of Doctors Without Borders in the U.S. Avril, we appreciate your time today. Anytime. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get back to our discussion with two new voices. Bulind Aliriza is a senior associate analyst and the founding director of the Turkey Project with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He joins us from Ankara, Turkey. Bulind, thanks for being here. Uh, happy to join you. Also joining me is Sarah Hunedi, a Syrian writer and human rights activist. She's also a consultant with the nonprofit organization, The Syria Campaign, and she joins us from Boston. Sarah, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, after you were exiled from Syria in 2014, you spent time in Turkey and Gaziantep, and it's been one of the city's hardest hit by the quake. What have you been hearing from your friends and colleagues about conditions in the city? Well, it's been super hard for them to really find um, a place to call to to find refuge, and they've been stuck in their cars. And people who don't have cars, we have to remember that the temperatures are um, very cold at the moment, and a lot of them are waiting for uh, transportation for safer places, and they're really afraid to go back to their homes, which is very well understandably. Um, and a lot of people are also inside of Syria. A lot of my friends are um, very overwhelmed by what happened. A lot of them actually thought it's another bombing by the Syrian regime and, and Russian forces. So the first reaction was to, um, you know, also leave the, the houses and, and seek shelter. Turkish President Erdogan visited the epicenter of one of the earthquake's aftershocks. It's a city called Karaman Maras. All state institutions are working on this at the moment. On the first day, we experienced some issues. But then on the second day and today, the situation has been taken under control. Bulin, how would you describe the Turkish government's response to this disaster? Well, the, uh, given the scale of the, uh, the earthquake and the, and the destruction uh, it caused, um, it would have been difficult for any government in any country to, uh, to deal with it. Um, 
he, uh, the president did acknowledge that uh, there were problems at the beginning. Uh, he said uh, uh, that everything is under control now. Um, I think that's being uh, uh, optimistic uh, because I think the, the problems will uh, are continuing. Um, certainly, the effort has uh, uh, you know has been upgraded. Uh, there uh, there are more um, rescue workers um, you know, trying to uh, to deal with the, the various problems. But as I said, you know the, it's now uh, it's not uh, you know there are very few people left to to uh, to rescue. So now. It's going to be a case of having to deal with uh, the very painful uh, recovery of the of the bodies, and uh, and then uh, the e equally difficult problem afterwards of, you know, uh, feeding uh, and and providing shelter for uh, for the people who suffered. And it's the middle of winter, and it's a very cold uh, spell um, that's uh, that Turkey is now uh, suffering from. Uh, you know, it would have been difficult in the summer. It's infinitely more difficult in, in the winter. Um, there are transportation problems uh, for those who are trying to get in and out in terms of getting the, the aid there. So it's a, it's a massive challenge for Turkey. And it needs to be stressed that Turkey has been going through uh, economic problems, having economic problems, which are going to be aggravated by, by, by what happened. You know, there's no uh, uh, estimate that's reliable as to how much this is going to uh, cost Turkey, but um, uh, obviously it's going to be a, a major bill that will be added to, uh, to Turkey's other economic issues. And one other point that I think needs to be made is, you know, we're in the, um, a pre-election uh, phase. Um, prior to the earthquake, the president had talked about uh, early elections um, a month before they were, they were due, namely in, uh, in the middle of May. Now um, we, we have this... Um, <clears throat> This problem, and the uh, um, uh, the uh, the emergency rule in ten provinces out of Turkey's eighty plus uh, provinces. So you know the political tensions are, are going to high, uh, get even higher as uh, as the recovery and the relief pro pro process continues. Well, as has been noted, Sarah, this earthquake struck Syria 12 years into the ongoing civil war. An estimated 3.6 million Syrian refugees are currently living in Turkey, many just across the border. How is this quake affecting the Syrian refugee population? Well, like I mentioned, these are populations that are already, you know, um, it's very hard for them to exist within Turkey, whether it is um, because of the economic situation of Turkey itself or because of um, a lot of people, you know, have escaped a war. So they have a lot of needs that are not met even in Turkey in their, you know, so-called place of refuge. So this came at a really sensitive time for Syrian refugees in Turkey. Um the it's we really have to make sure that they're not overlooked because some reports are really uh, concerning uh, of Syrians in Turkey being overlooked. Unfortunately, the, your uh, citizenship or where you were born should not uh, be a prerequisite of if you sh whether or not you should be saved. This is a um, you know a, a catastrophe for everyone. So I hope that. Turkish government and um, aid workers are treating everyone equally. But like I mentioned, the reports are not really, um, they're, they're a bit concerning. Well, Turkey says it hopes to open two more border crossings into Syria to get aid into the country. The only existing land crossing into the opposition-controlled northwest is closed because of damaged roads. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken condemned Russia, a staunch ally of the Syrian government, for its efforts to close the crossing.
There is one crossing that um, allows assistance to get into Syria from the, from the outside, and that was disrupted by the earthquake. It's exactly why we have been fighting every single year, not only to preserve that crossing, it's authorized, as you know, by the United Nations, but to get additional ones uh, so that if a crossing was taken out of action, there would be uh, other places that people could get humanitarian assistance in. And, of course, year after year, Russia has sought to block those crossings or to limit them. And that only compounds the tragedy that people in Syria are now experiencing. Bullet, how has Syria's ongoing civil war complicated Turkey's ability to provide necessary medical supplies to cities controlled by President Bashar al-Assad's government? Well, you know, the, beyond the, quarter, uh, beyond the, uh, the border crossing that Secretary Blinken talked about, um, is the province of Idlib, uh, which is beyond the control of the uh, of the Syrian government. Now, uh, for over a decade now, uh, the Turkish and Syrian governments have had no contact. Turkey has provided support for the opposition, and even though recently uh, the Turkish government uh, has been talking about a possible rapprochement with Syria, we're far from there. So, um, uh, how the aid that uh, will cross from uh, Turkey into Idlib, and then to the other provinces. There are three other areas in northern Syria which are controlled by Turkey uh, or, it, or, or groups that it's supporting. How the aid that goes into that area, uh, into those areas, will then cross into um, the uh, Syrian government-controlled areas. You know, which is uh, uh, let's remember that the uh, the Syrian government is shunned rightly by the uh, the rest of the world, except for the Russians and the Iranians, um, uh, for its uh, uh, previous practices against his own population. And four million Syrian refugees have actually found their homes in Turkey. And, uh, you know, Turkey is doing its best to help them. But, you know, we had a complicated situation before. It's going to get even more complicated uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Well, Sarah, how is Russia's involvement in the war complicating relief efforts? Well, by by helping Assad bombing infrastructure made it really hard uh, or even worse when, when the earthquake hit. Those buildings are already like barely standing. So they made the population even more vulnerable to the earthquake. And we have to remember that Russia has been aiding the Syrian government since 2015 uh, with their army. So... I, do, I doubt the, the Syrian government would have even uh, survived without help from, from Russia. And these, um, like I mentioned, like the broken infrastructure has been bombed for a decade. And now only the few buildings that are still standing are falling. And um, obviously, like blocking aid and using the veto to, to block more aid is, is another war t- tactic that Russia has been using its power to, uh, against the Syrian people and Syrian civilians. The 7.8 magnitude earthquake is one of the largest in Turkey's history. We spoke to Alex Hadam, a researcher with the United States Geological Survey. She explained why this earthquake was so deadly. In the historical period on this fault zone, it does seem like this is the largest earthquake that's in recent memory. It does tie an earthquake that occurred in 1939 further to the north in Turkey. Now, the last major earthquake to hit Turkey in 1999 
That was when a 7.6 magnitude quake struck near the city of Izmet. Sharon emailed, The BBC had an interview with a Turkish structural engineer who said that the apartment blocks that were built after 1990 weren't built to withstand this quake. The building codes were not enforced. No emergency preparedness is enough when all the buildings collapse in an earthquake. And Kokomo Kid tweeted, Were a lot of the buildings substandard or was the earthquake so strong that almost nothing could survive? Bulent, what can you tell us? Well, back in 1999, when the, 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 uh, the earthquake you mentioned occurred, uh, there were lots of questions raised about the, the, the quality of the, uh, the buildings that had been constructed. And, uh, and at least one um, uh, uh, company uh, was prosecuted uh, for negligence uh, in terms of providing the, the right um, uh, construction equipment for, for the houses. Now, that question... Um, uh, has been discussed, you know, in the quarter century since then, and uh, successive governments, including the current government, which has uh, been uh, um, in power for two decades, um, has been hopeful and, and has been uh, reassuring people that uh, that the standards were uh, were uh, much higher than uh, than they were before, and people were uh, were safe. Now, clearly, you know, there are questions that uh, that need to be answered now, and the justice minister announced just today that those who are guilty of, of, of negligence um, in terms of, of, of uh, providing the right construction and using the right materials will be prosecuted. Um, remains to be seen whether that will actually uh, happen, but uh, you know, the fact that so many buildings collapsed, uh, um, and, you know, just like car, uh, you know, build, um, playing cards, um, you know, gives one concern as to how safe those buildings were and whether the right lessons will be drawn from now on. We've been speaking with Bulent Ali Riza. He's a senior associate analyst and the founding director of the Turkey Project with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Also with us, Sarah Hunedi. She's a Syrian human rights activist and writer. Bulent, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Today's producers were Chris Remington and June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.